every person on the planet knows he should fear the one true God, he should love the one true God, he should worship the one true God, but he rebels against that knowledge, he is ungodly. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1 titled, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. At the heart of Paul's teaching, beginning in Romans 1.18, is that God's wrath is being revealed against the immoral pagan who has willingly and willfully rejected him. Because although man deserves God's eternal wrath and punishment, God has provided a way for man to be forgiven of his sins and to be justified before him. But how? How can a just and holy God pardon guilty sinners? By pouring out his wrath on a substitute, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace beyond description. What a Savior we as believers have in Christ. What about you, friend? Have you placed your only hope for salvation in this wonderful Savior? Let's join Tom right now for more here on The Word Unleashed. Every human being knows God's law because God has written the essence of it into his DNA, into his heart. And every man who knows that rebels against it. Now, Paul gets very specific about the nature of our rebellion back in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, obviously, this indictment is in a section, as I already told you, that Paul is addressing the guilt of immoral pagans. But in reality, this is also an indictment of all men and all women. This verse is an indictment of those who are religious and those who are pagan, those who are moral in their lives and those who are immoral in their lives, those who are Jew and those who are Gentile. This verse describes all mankind's rebellion against our Creator. Now notice, Paul says our rebellion against God's law falls into two basic categories. First of all, there is ungodliness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This word is a vertical word. This describes man's relationship specifically to God. It describes a flawed and sinful response to the one true God. It's a state of settled opposition to God, a refusal to recognize his rightful claims. Now, don't misunderstand ungodly does not mean irreligious. In fact, you can be very religious and be ungodly. He's going to make that point in verse 23 and verse 25. These people worship. They're very religious. And yet, they're also ungodly. You see, the word ungodly describes one who practices the opposite of what the fear of the true God demands. So he may be very religious, 
But he doesn't fear the true God and respond to the true God as he ought to. So let me kind of make this more applicable in our day. The terrorists connected to ISIS are religious, very religious in some cases. But they are, by the definition of this word, ungodly. Hindu monks are religious, but ungodly. Others involved in false religions are religious, but ungodly. At the same time, the person who lives down the street from you, who denies that there is a God, who acts as though there is no God and lives that way, he is also ungodly. Now, when we parse ungodliness into its constituent parts, it consists of several things. First of all, it is a lack of the fear of God. Ungodliness is a lack of the fear of God. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, and we'll talk about how they knew and what they knew next week, Lord willing, they did not honor. Now notice the word honor in your NAS has a marginal reference. Literally glorify. The Greek word is the word glorify. They did not glorify him as God. They didn't put him in his right place They didn't respond to him with the respect, the honor, the fear that he deserves. Turn over to chapter 3. Paul comes back to this when he comes to the indictment of all humanity. Chapter 3, verse 11, there is none who understands. And then he says really something very surprising. There is none, not one, who seeks for God. Now, a lot of people think, that those who are involved in false religion are seeking God. Folks, they are not seeking God. They are running away from the true God to a God of their own making so they can live the way they want to live. No man seeks by nature the true God. False religion is not a way to seek him. It's a way to run from him. Look at verse 18. Here's the real issue. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the heart of ungodliness. It's for there to be a God who gave you life, who sustains you, who gives you every good gift, who keeps your heart beating moment by moment, and for you not to fear him, for you not to respect and honor him. That is the essence of ungodliness. A second constituent part of ungodliness, not only a lack of fear of God, but a lack of love for God. You see, the most basic command God has for man is what? To love him. To love him because he's worthy of our love and because it's also for our good to love him. And so you come to Deuteronomy chapter 6 Verse 5, the Shema, the, the great commandment. And what does Moses write? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is what God most expects of you, demands of you. You remember in the ministry of our Lord in Matthew 22, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, a scribe comes to him trying to trip him up in his words. And he says, so what's the great command in the law? tries to get him involved in a theological discussion and debate that was going on in the first century, to which Jesus responds, this is the great command. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus says, this is his commentary, this is the foremost command of all. This is the chief command. This is the main thing. And yet, ungodliness does not love God. The person who's ungodly does not respond to God in love. In fact, it is the essence of being a Christian to respond to God in love. I love the way Paul defines it. Look at chapter 8. We quote this verse often, but I want you to see it in a little different context. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to believers. That's what he means. But notice how he describes believers. To those who love God. To be a true follower of Christ is to be one who loves God. But those who don't follow Christ, those who are not true believers, do not love God. They are ungodly. There's a third part of being ungodly, not only a lack of fear of God, a lack of honor of God, and a lack of love for God, but thirdly, a lack of the worship of God. This also is foundational to what God requires of us. When God lays out the sort of basic overview of his law in the Ten Commandments, how does he start? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you must worship me alone. And the second commandment, by the way, says, and you must worship me not in a way of your own making, but only as I prescribe. You must worship me. That's part of what we're supposed to do as human beings. But notice what happens instead. Romans chapter 1, verse 23. Men and women exchange the glory of the incorruptible God For images, they get into idolatry instead. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So understand then that every person on the planet knows he should fear the one true God, he should love the one true God, he should worship the one true God, but he rebels against that knowledge. He is ungodly. For sinful and selfish reasons, he does not fear God, but he fears men and other things. He does not love God, but he loves himself. And he does not worship God, but he worships idols of his own making. You need to understand the sin of ungodliness, as Paul describes it here, is the foundation of all other sin. We sin against people because we are ungodly, because we don't love, worship, and fear the one true God the way we ought to. And it is in part for this sin of ungodliness that God will eventually bring his wrath to play on human beings. In fact, turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter gives a couple of examples from the past of God's judgment coming because of ungodliness. 2 Peter 2 verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
at the heart of their sin and rebellion against God was ungodliness, their, their refusal to fear and love and worship the one true God. Verse 6, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Listen, God destroyed the cities of the plain not only because of their rebellion in the issue of homosexuality, but also, and really the heart of it, was their refusal to fear and love and worship Him. And that led to, as Romans 1 will make clear, that led to their specific sin. But Peter goes to the future in chapter 3, verse 7. And he says, by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, not flood, but fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, those who don't fear and love and worship the one true God. So understand then, God is angry at ungodliness, our failure to fear and honor him as we ought to honor him, to love him as we ought to love him, and to worship him as we ought to worship him. But there's a second category of human sinfulness back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Not only ungodliness, but unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Now, let me distinguish these two words for you. Ungodliness has to do with our sin directed against God's person. Unrighteousness has to do with our sin directed against God's law. Unrighteousness is a lack of conformity in our thoughts, our words, and our actions to God's law, and ultimately then to his character, because his character is what shapes his law. As this chapter unfolds, Paul is going to identify a number of sins that pagans engage in that violate God's law. In verse 24, moral impurity, sexual impurity. In verse 26, homosexuality. But then in verses 29 to 31, he gives a list of sins, one of the vice lists of the New Testament. A whole group of sins that can be characterized as violations of God's law or unrighteousness. Now, look back at verse 18 and notice the word all. That is a very important word because it means God overlooks nothing. There are no expressions of ungodliness, there are no kinds of unrighteousness against which his wrath is not revealed. Now that is so important for us to get because what do we do as humans? We look at someone else and we say, can you believe she did that? And then we look at ourselves and we say what? Well, it wasn't that big a deal. Listen, there is not one sin that you have ever committed against which God's wrath is not revealed. Against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. His wrath is revealed against every human sin. 
If you had only committed one sin in your life, it would deserve and apart from grace get the wrath of God. So the first reason God's wrath is being revealed from heaven is the immoral pagan's willful rebellion against God's law. A rebellion that is manifested in his ungodliness and his unrighteousness. Now there's a second reason God's wrath is being revealed, according to Paul here, and that is the immoral pagan's willful ignorance of God's person. His willful ignorance of God's person. And this is the part of his indictment where Paul spends the most time. He summarizes it at the end of verse 18. Notice, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he explains it at length in verses 19 to 23. Let's just look at the brief summary. Look at the end of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what is the truth to which Paul is referring here? Well, the context makes it very clear. He means the truth about God that is revealed in creation. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. And they are understood by looking at what he has made, so that all human beings are without excuse. There's no excuse. So understand then, what Paul is saying is God has made certain things about himself known in creation. His existence, his eternal power, his divine nature. And what does sinful man do in response to what God has made clear to him? Look at verse 18 again. He suppresses it. He holds it down. He stifles it. He does everything he can to silence its voice in his life. When my kids were young, one of their siblings would often say something they didn't want to hear. I'm sure you've experienced that if you have children, or you did this yourself when you were young. When somebody was saying something, when you were a kid, you didn't want to hear, what did you do? You stuck your fingers in your ears, and you said something equivalent to... (laughs) Or in the case of my family, I don't know how this got started, I think my oldest daughter's responsible, but... She would stick her fingers in her ears and began singing at the very top of her lungs, Mary had a little lamb. That is exactly what every sinner chooses to do. He intentionally ignores or even denies what God has made evident about his person. In other words, men are willfully ignorant of God's person. They know the truth of God's existence, of his divine nature, and they intentionally suppress what is evident to them, and they act as though they didn't know it. John Stott writes, it is not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It is that they have made a decision to live for themselves rather than for God and others, and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. Now, why do we do this? Well, look again at verse 18 for the answer. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul could mean we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness, but I think the best way to understand this as 
we suppress the truth we know about God and His law because of our unrighteousness, because we love our sin. We want to do what we want to do, and so we suppress the truth. No wonder God is angry with men for their ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. Folks, this is why we and immoral pagans need the gospel. Because God is angry with our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, with our suppression of the truth he has revealed to us. But the God of wrath and anger, and here's the good news, is also a God of grace. He's a God of grace. I never get tired of thinking about defining grace. I hope you never get tired of hearing it. You know what grace is? Grace is a quality in God's character that causes him to delight, not just to do, but to delight in doing good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. That's grace. And moved solely by his grace, God made a way to satisfy his just wrath against our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. And he did it by pouring out the full fury of his anger on a willing substitute, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, nowhere is the wrath of God more clearly revealed or more powerfully displayed than on the cross when he turned his back on the son of his love. And God has told us what he has done to satisfy his wrath in the gospel. So, folks, the gospel is extraordinarily good news. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It's good news for the ungodly because verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, that is morally helpless, spiritually unable to do anything. At the right time, Christ died for, he died on behalf of the ungodly, those who didn't fear God, who didn't love God, who didn't worship God. He died on their behalf. And because he did that, look back at chapter 4, verse 5. Because of the work of Christ in his life and death, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It is the complete satisfaction of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness at the cross that we celebrate in the Lord's table. Our Father... We thank you for your amazing grace to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never get over that. Help us to remember what you have saved us from. You have saved us from yourself, from your justice, from your wrath that we deserve. We thank you, O oh God, that our Lord drank the full cup of your wrath to the dregs so that there's not a single drop left for us who are in Christ. May we leave here with your praise in our hearts and on our lips. May we live in light of what you've done. Father, we pray 
for those who still live under the reality of your looming wrath. May this be the day when they flee to Christ, when they run to Christ to be saved from your wrath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part five for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today, could you help underscore how Paul's discussion about the wrath of God in Romans 1 fits into the theme of the entire book? The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of God. That is the good news that's found in Jesus Christ, that God has made a way for us as sinful people to be reconciled to him. But before Paul gives an in-depth explanation of the good news, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he first gives the bad news that man has sinned before God and that God's wrath is being poured out against that rebellion now and in the future. So in Romans 1, which is the focus of our study in this series, Paul demonstrates with overwhelming evidence that mankind knows God, sins against God, and is accountable to God. Thankfully, God determined to satisfy his own just wrath against our ungodliness and our unrighteousness by pouring out the full fury of his anger on a willing substitute, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. (laughs) 